Welcome to Truth Jihad Audiovisual. Kevin Barrett here, talking to folks from all over the world who have more accurate information to impart and more plausible points of view to offer than you're allowed to encounter in the corporate-controlled mainstream media. Today, going all the way over to Madrid, Spain, for a conversation with Philip Kraske. He just published an excellent piece at the UNS Review, and rather than just tell you about it, I think I can actually show this piece. It's uh, called The War in Ukraine Will End with a Bang uh, and Soon. And it's quite thought-provoking, to say the least, and comment-provoking. What do we have? 329 comments already. So, hey, uh, congratulations on that excellent article, Phil. Well, thanks. Uh, thanks, Kevin. I uh, didn't expect quite that big a, a reaction, but I seem to have really uh, touched a nerve with a lot of people. Strange. Yeah, well, I think you're. I think you're kind of a, a troll and a provocateur. You have a, you know, with this particular article, you have a genius for uh, pushing the buttons, and you know, the angry people uh, uh, on both sides of this particular issue uh, loved to fight it out in the comment section because the article got them so provoked. And you also took a kind of a, a new, fresh, different approach to this well-worn topic of, you know, what's going to happen in Ukraine? Oh, the Russians are going to wipe everybody, wipe out the West, and, and that's the end of the dollar empire. And then the other side says, no, you know, Ukraine is winning. The Russians have made the biggest mistake of Putin's life. And so there's this kind of chorus on both sides that never really yeah. says anything new. And you came along and dropped a bomb onto them by saying something new. So I think that's, you know, that's a good kind of provocation. It's the kind of makes people think. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, well, the argument that I, I, I make in the article, I think, really is just uh, sort of connecting the dots. Um, and I don't think it's, it's terribly, uh, I don't think it's terribly quaint, really. I mean, basically, I start with the idea that the United States is, uh, the foreign policy people are determined to stop the rise of China. And this is the, the Wolfowitz doctrine that goes way back to the early 90s. And China allied with Russia as, as its gas station is, is a largely unbeatable com, com, you know, combination. I mean, even if you, you know, even if you blockaded the ports of China and sort of tried to starve them out, they still had their back door um, and, and, and they could still uh, survive. And so really the only option here is for the United States to somehow eliminate Russia uh, as an ally of China. That is, eliminate Russia or sort of take over Russia. And, and, and let, let, me, let me just very briefly interrupt you here and offer uh, a third possibility here, uh, you know, as opposed to surrendering to China or destroying Russia to take away China's gas station and backdoor to trade. How about playing the two off against each other like they did in the 60s? That worked okay. Why Why would you have fight both these huge, powerful countries at once? Why not try to sort of take them on one at a time by being friendly with one while you focus on containing the other? Well, that's exactly what they were trying to do in the 90s. And to their, to their surprise, the uh, American moves and, and the, you know, uh, the sort of uh, aggressiveness underlying the American strategy drove Russia and China together, and which rather surprised the, the foreign policy community. And 
So now, really, there's there's no prying them apart. Both of them are afraid of American aggression. And you see, what's changed now is that if the United States is going to pursue this policy of keeping, uh, of maintaining its single superpower status, uh, they need to do something about Russia. It's not a question of uh, yes or of, you know, maybe we can do it and otherwise not. They, they have to do it. And so that's why I think that this, the, the, the nuclear option is now being talked about uh, seriously. And from people, you know, that I read in, in uh, internet, people who have their ears to the ground in, uh, uh, in Washington, apparently there's a lot of loose talk about trying to win a nuclear war. And it's, it's pretty scary. Mm -hmm. Well, there's been that kind of loose talk for a very long time. And in fact, it's actually worse than loose talk. It's uh, it's the official doctrine. The, the official U.S. nuclear doctrine is that we will not be the second to strike. And so it's we've been geared for a first strike. And of course, that's used to bully other nations. That is the purpose of building a nuclear arsenal that is primarily designed for a first strike, which ours is, is to basically tell other countries, uh, look, what we can do to you uh, if push comes to shove. And, uh, you know, this is one of the dirty little secrets of the U U.S. Uh, military strategic posture. And Dr. Bob Bowman, who became a friend of mine uh, before he died, uh, unfortunately, and perhaps prematurely, uh, as he was running a sort of a 9-11 truth insurgency, he was the former uh, SDI, or rather, uh, space uh, space weapons are under two U.S. presidents, Ford and Carter, and he resigned because the whole uh, space weapon Star Wars program was really all about enabling a first strike. It wasn't really about doing what Reagan was talking about, which was trying to protect the U.S. from a Soviet strike. On the contrary, uh, it was putting up all sorts of platforms that were highly vulnerable that could only be used in a first strike, and uh, along with first strike weapons. Uh, and Dr. Bob talked about. Uh, one weapon that could set a city ablaze uh, almost instantly that was actually deployable back in the 1970s, and another uh, artificial asteroid program that could drop these artificial asteroids on uh, nuclear launch silos and take them out. So anyway, uh, yeah, this has been the policy for a long time to prepare for a first strike. And I think that your article is absolutely right in raising that uh, that issue. But whether there's been any particular change with regard to the you know, thinking about how to manage conflict with Russia, I'm not so sure about that. What are what's the evidence for that? Um, well, I, I don't know that um, we we have a lot of uh, evidence that you know the average man can can see, but there has to be some logic behind all of this uh, the the war with Ukraine, uh, which you know now has been going through three administrations, Obama, Trump, and, and now uh, Biden. And there has to be some, some reason for this. Why are, they, why are they using Ukraine to fight against Russia? I mean, obviously, they know that a small country like Ukraine can't defeat a big country like Russia that you, has- You'd think they know that. <laughs> a very, you know, very well-developed uh, arms program and, and defense systems and, and, and so on. And I think probably the people in, in foreign policy would probably prefer some sort of humiliation, if not defeat, 
at least a humiliation of the Russian army that would result in the top echelon of, uh, of uh, Russian government, uh, generals, etc., maybe trying to replace uh, Putin. But if that doesn't work, and if they still want to take out Russia, which seems to be the case, then the only other option that they have is, is a nuclear one. And, uh, you know, as I point out in my article, if uh, the United States does take this, you know, drastic step, uh, they wouldn't have any trouble justifying it to public opinion. They can always say, well, you know, we saw the Russians preparing for, you know, uh, taking the lids off their their uh, our uh, nuclear rocket tubes and things like that. You know, p- public opinion has been so prepared in the anti-Putin mode and saying that and believing that, that you know, Putin is a madman, that they will probably accept uh, uh, any explanation, uh, even in, in within shouting distance of plausible. And so... Um, I think that that's what they're probably thinking in in uh, Washington as uh, a final, as a last, uh, um, uh, a last resort. Mm-hmm. And and I think as a last resort, yeah, they probably are thinking that it's certainly probably it's got to be one of the options, especially in the minds of the more hawkish neocons. However, the, your article sort of portrays it as though that's kind of what they were planning all along that is that the whole purpose of starting this uh, war uh, in in ukraine was to maneuver the russians to reach the point that they could then do their long desired nuclear first strike against russia now maybe there are some strategists that were thinking that way but i i'm skeptical about that uh for and the main reason which i mentioned in my comment on your article is that there are indications that Russia has substantially beefed up its dis, uh, deterrent capability uh, and its strategic forces. And sure. so whether these neocons would have any confidence that they could get away with a disarming strike against Russia and suffer, as Dr. Strangelove put it, uh, 20, 20 million casualties tops, Mr. President, uh, I don't know. You know, do they real? Are they sure that that tidal wave, nuclear radioactive tidal wave machine that Putin has on his submarines, doesn't work? Are they sure that even you know it would only take a couple of these Russian MIRVs to just utterly annihilate the entire United States, if not r- make it permanently uninhabitable? And indeed, the book, uh, what's it called, uh, uh, Plague Wars by Mangold and Goldberg, go- uh, tells us that Russia has had. Uh, ICBMs with these MIRV multiple independent reentry vehicle warheads mm-hmm. that are packed full of these horrific bioweapons and that a couple of those rockets would be enough to deliver enough uh, bio <laughs> war material to North America to essentially render North America uninhabitable by human beings and, and perhaps many other higher mammals for uh, millennia. And that's just a couple of rockets with those bioweapons. So seriously, how, how could these neocons even imagine that they could get away with 20 million, you know, losing 20 million Americans tops? And could they even imagine if they if all they lost was somehow 20 million Americans tops, that their public opinion 
control <laughs> might be endangered. Uh, so, so, so I, I'm skeptical. Tell, tell me why you think that they are that that. Cra- I mean, I know they're crazy, but are they really that crazy? Well, I, I don't really have any good answer for you, Kevin, because obviously we don't know. We can't look into the, you know, the uh, machinations of, uh, you know, the Pentagon and the CIA and all those people. But it seems to me that it's a, a bit like. It's a bit like people trying to break into the vault of a, of a big bank. And what do they do? They plan, maybe for years. You know, you've seen all kinds of movies about that kind of thing. And it seems to me that if they thought they had a way to do it, uh, to, you know, to at least take out enough of the Russian defenses, you know, to destroy enough of Russia and then maybe whatever, they have somebody like what else? Let's say Medvedev, uh, the the, um, former president. He's out of the country. They make their attack and immediately talk to Medvedev and say, if you tell your people to stand down, it's over. We won't send any more. And also, you're the president. Something like that, you know, a, a certain combination of ways to get past defenses and to get the Russians not to respond. Now, I don't have any idea how that would go. I, I really don't. You know, who, who does? But a few, you know, rather select people. But it seems to me that given the, the stakes here, either they do something about Russia or China and Russia and a lot of others are going to rise to to be the, the same level of power uh, as the United States. Those stakes are important enough to stimulate a lot of creative thinking in Washington. I mean, you look at, for example, look at 9-11. Now, if you believe, as, as you and I do, that it wasn't, you know, the, the hijackers and the planes, but it was actually a whole operation that was carried out by obviously quite a few very skillful very well-financed people i mean look how complex the operation was they had to work with the airplanes the airports the patsy hijackers they had to do the uh, the faa they had to make sure american offenses were out they had to be sure that the airplanes would actually hit the towers it was an extraordinarily complex operation. And after all that, they had to take down three towers in the midst of chaos and make perfect demolitions of them. Now, and about- make it make it at least sort of plausible enough to sell to the media yes. that these buildings had just fallen down from fire. Exactly. And which- still, here we are, 20 years later, people are still arguing about it. Now, think about the complexity of that operation. And then think about applying those same people, those same skills to the problem of attacking Russia with nuclear weapons. Well, I, I thought about that because you... Then, then I think it becomes a little more real. But yeah, you, I, I did think about that when I read your article. But this is another point I would push back a little bit on. And that is, I, I would cite Webster Tarpley's remark uh, in 9-11 Synthetic Terror, which many other people, I suppose, have also talked about and noticed, which is that the absolutely easiest kind of military operation to run is a false flag operation because essentially there's no opposition 
in uh, most military operations, there's somebody who's fighting back, who's trying to stay one step ahead of you. In mm -hmm. a false flag operation, there isn't because you're the imaginary enemy yourself. And so you can make your quote unquote enemy do whatever you want. So mm -hmm. these Patsy so-called hijackers, 15 of them, the 15 Saudis were brought over by the CIA on CIA snitch visas. I have that from secondhand <laughs> from a CIA source that knows it. And mm -hmm. so those 15 Saudis were CIA people that just did whatever they were told. And uh, I, we could go on and on and on about how the defenses were stood down. In fact, changes were made in the procedure to make sure that there wouldn't be a problem with the defenses standing down and so on and so forth. So, mm -hmm. yes, it was a logistically complex feat. The demolition of the three tallest buildings ever to be taken down in controlled demolitions was quite complex. I don't agree that they did a very good job of disguising their demolitions. I Frankly, I, I think they bungled in that and in so many other ways. They bungled so badly that even with absolute control of the media, it became obvious with just a couple of days worth of research in December 2003 that when I just even looked at it, I saw, my God, this is the, the, this issue. It's not that they did it. It's that they did it. And it's just so obvious. So they got away with it because, A, there was no opposition to the military operation whatsoever, and they completely controlled the media. And psychologically, most Americans just were and remain utterly unprepared to deal with the reality of what people in power especially neocons are willing to do but to me i'm not that surprised that they could do 9-11 with no opposition and then get their butts kicked by the taliban a bunch of you know guys with yeah. you know kalishnikovs at best because they they were facing opposition and the opposition wouldn't go away and and iraq is now more of an iranian asset than an american asset they lost in iraq uh, they haven't been able to subdue Yemen, even with the help of all of the richest, most powerful people in that region. And we could go on and on and on about what they they can't get away with. So it seems to me that uh, your comparison of the uh, amazing skill of 9-11, as opposed to what it would take to uh, reliably somehow take out Russia in a nuclear strike and not suffer any retaliation uh, is, is is really incommensurate. So that's not really a very valid comparison. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, 9-11 was a specific operation and the wars against Afghanistan, et cetera, you know, were, were, weren't operations. They were, you know, long wars. Yeah, long somebody time. was fighting back. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but I think also that you have to understand that there's probably an awful lot of wishful thinking uh, among the foreign policy people. And they are people who clearly, you know, don't don't uh, give you much, much confidence. They uh, again and again, I see in uh, articles about foreign policy, how how the, the top people in uh you know, in foreign policy, uh, Jake Sullivan and Anthony Blinken, how they inspire no confidence in people and are kind of considered kind of dumb. And I can't imagine why that would be. <laughs> it may well be that, you know, a combination of wishful thinking and and daring do is, is going to convince them. I mean... Well isn't Blinken some kind of social sciences major or something? I mean, there there are a bunch of these people who really don't have. Uh, I super... think Sullivan is is a lawyer. He's not a okay. foreign policy okay. guy. Yeah, yeah. A lot yeah. of these people don't seem like the brightest bulbs in the pack. Yeah, yeah, and uh, 
you know, it's interesting that both world wars started uh, in part as a result of huge miscalculations uh, on each side. And again, would that wouldn't that happen again? Um, I think that that those people really don't have a lot of, uh, mm -hmm. you know, those people are easy to convince, and especially they they can easily convince themselves. Mm -hmm. And you know, uh, they are a really reckless crew. I mean, they you know they surely sabotage the the Nord Stream two pipeline, which you know is is a truly savage act of of uh, you know of aggression against well in this case against Germany and 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 Europe I mean the, that was sort of the the lifeline of of the European economy and they got away with it because they have no opposition from the Germans yeah well yeah, yeah nobody for the moment nobody the, the investigation is ongoing they say I think that it's going to be a long time before they actually present any results. But um, obviously, if they had found anything against the Russians, they would have raised the shout. And that hasn't happened yet. Mm -hmm. So, Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I think uh, you've convinced me, although I guess I was already somewhat convinced, that events are moving uh, in such towards the kind of uh, end that you forecast. Whether it's soon or not, I don't know. But the possibility of things ending with a nuclear bang seems, uh, unfortunately, all too real. And that, uh, it, although I think that you may have, you, you're, you're probably not giving as much importance as I would to the fact that the Russians have more skin in the game than the Americans. Because as you say, it is reaching the point of being a sort of a game of chicken where the neocons uh, with their empire, they're unwilling to lose their empire by allowing the emergence of a pure competitor or even a, a rival regional hegemon. That's the base of the Wolfowitz doctrine, as you point out. So they feel like they have a lot of skin in the game because if they lose this war to Russia, then they lose their empire. There will be the emergence of, of China as at least a regional hegemon, if not a pure competitor. However, if Russia loses, Russia's gone. I mean, they, they'll be broken up. Uh, so I think Russia has a lot more skin in the game. So when it comes down to actually who's willing to make that big bang happen, uh, it's actually more the Russians that would be if they thought they were losing. And uh, assuming that they're reasonably competent, just like the Americans are, of course, that's always a big assumption. <laughs> Dr. Strangelove being a, a great documentary is what Daniel mm -hmm. Ellsberg told me. He had Ellsberg and his friend walked out of a Dr. Strangelove showing back around 1960 or whenever it came out. Wow, that was a great documentary. So yeah, they're, so they're all crazy. That's <laughs> That comes with the territory. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah. but ultimately, because Russia has more skin in the game, the Americans, I think, have a lot more reason to be the ones that back off first in this game of chicken, to swerve. Because even if the U.S. loses we've still got this massive regional hegemon, you know, the world's most advanced and powerful country in a lot of ways. Uh, we still have, you know, if we want, we can have an empire in the Western hemisphere. Uh, you know, we, we can, it'll be a, a rough patch as we get past this petrodollar empire period of raping the world. Uh, and, and we'll have to learn how to make our own stuff again and things like that. It'll be rough, but it's not, that's not the end of the world. But the problem is, if we try to nuke the Russians, 
um, that probably is the end of the world. You know, there's a really good chance that we lose everything. So the Russians, they're going to lose everything if they lose the war. So they're willing to uncork those nukes if they have to, no problem. They're going to make sure that they they do if it reaches anywhere near that point. The Americans, on the other hand, it's more like, well, you know, we could get by even if we lose this war, just like we lost Iraq, Afghanistan, and Vietnam, and on, and everything except Grenada. <laughs> That's World War II. So, so given all of that, it seems to me the Americans should back off first and likely will, and that it would be, you know, really strategically stupid to uh, to even get close to that nuclear threshold. But I, you may be right. Maybe they're that stupid. Yeah. Well, you have to remember one thing, Kevin, uh, about, you know, the whole nuclear standoff. And that is that it's the, you know, it's the side that shoots first that automatically has the advantage. Because if your country is destroyed, well, why shoot back? Hmm. Well, and- yeah, but I mean, Russia's got the dead hand and that they... And again, and I think Russia's more likely to shoot back if they're destroyed than the U.S. is, actually. I mean, Ru- Russia has this whole history of being really pissed off at invaders coming and trashing their country, and we don't. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 I, I see what you mean. Um, you know, you mentioned uh, Dr. Dr. Strangelove. Um, you know, it, there's an interesting uh, anecdote that uh, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. tells at the end of his his book, uh, American Values, which is that two months before his, his death, President Kennedy had a meeting with the Joint Chiefs in which they presented him with a first strike plan uh, against USSR. And they told him the USSR would be destroyed and that American casualties would be limited to 12 million. And they considered this acceptable. And, you know, of course, Kennedy said no. But when you think about that, and you think about the Americans thinking of a future in which their dollar is, is having big problems, uh, they can't, you know, countries are paying for uh, oil and other currencies, and they're losing, um, they're losing sway in Latin America, in Asia, in Africa. When they look at that future, I wonder what they're thinking. You know, is is acceptable? Mm-hmm. It's it makes you it makes you wonder. I, I would hope that they would recognize that it's too late. That, that oops, I guess we screwed up when we offshored manufacturing and and uh, you know, greased the skids for China to take off and all of that. And now it's too late. So let's make our peace with the multipolar world. But yeah, you're right. That's not the neocon way. They uh, claim to be fanatically. Uh, you know, the, tied to this vision of the U.S. as the world's sole superpower, and uh, it seems to me it's uh, ironically though they they are the ones who damaged that the most with 9/11, which took America's resources and you know soft power and just squandered them on these strategically completely counterproductive wars on countries that the U.S. had no business going to war with. Yes. It actually should be, you know, as Brzezinski said, the same, of all the countries on earth, the one that the U.S. needs to cultivate the most and bend over backwards the most to please and kiss up to if necessary to have on our side is Iran. And mm. yet we've done everything possible to antagonize Iran. Why? All because mm. of Israel, which is, of course, the reason they did 9-11. It was not about the U.S. It was about Israel, as Zelikow basically admitted. 
Although, you know, his his admission was when he was asked about Iraq, he said, well, who really cares about, you know, Saddam Hussein and his, if, even if he did have weapons of mass destruction, it wouldn't be a threat to America. But I'll tell you what the real threat is. It's the threat that dare not speak its name. It's the threat to Israel. And that, yeah. I think, is a very hard sell to the American people. Well, mm -hmm. it became less of a hard sell because the neocons did 9-11 and they diverted uh, trillions, maybe seven, eight trillion dollars uh, to this fight against the enemies of Israel. And that also diverted the U.S. military posture, strategic posture and strategy towards this fake problem, this non-problem in the Middle East. And China just kept rising. Russia rebuilt. And all of these things probably could have been managed intelligently without even having any wars at all. Uh, but by going to war in the Middle East for Israel based on this Zionist neocon false flag event, they really blew up the possibility of a new American century of U.S. hegemony. So that's one of the ironies. And it does show, I think, that the neocons are strategically not particularly um, wise, uh, to put it mildly. But now I would think that they would see they're in a position that they're just going to have to back down from this unipolar hegemon status one way or another. A lot of a lot of people, you know, Alfred McCoy wrote this in his piece published in Counterpunch a week and a half ago. Uh, McCoy, who's the guy who exposed the CIA uh, heroin dealing program back in the 70s at the University of Wisconsin. He's a history professor at Wisconsin. Unfortunately, I could never get him to join me in the 9-11 thing, but I guess he had enough on his plate. But anyway, he wrote this piece pointing out that the writing's on the wall. We have to back down from this unipolar empire and start focusing on our own hemisphere and admit that it's a unipolar world. But yeah, you're right. The neocons don't don't want that. Anyway, one other aspect of your article that I would push back on, uh, it's, a, it's a great article, like very provocative. Uh, I, I couldn't have come up with a better provocation myself. But the one other thing I, I and some other commenters disagree with is the notion that the U.S. and NATO could easily beat Russia in like an invasion of Russia. and Frankly, uh, I would agree with the commenters who thought that was a, a little bit of a stretch that uh, Hitler and Napoleon tried that. It didn't work too well for them. And I think it would work even less now. I mean, who really wants to invade Russia? I mean, who, who's going to march off into Russia following the new Napoleon? Uh, the Europe, Western Europeans I see are all a bunch of, excuse my language, pussies. <laughs> I mean, you, you could go, you could go in and, and, and raid their refrigerator and, and grab their girlfriend and they wouldn't fight back. So they're going to march into Russia. Give me a break. And uh, and frankly, I don't think there's anybody here in America who wants to either. And the conservatives here in America, the people who used to be the guys who would go off and volunteer to go fight for old glory. Those guys are the guy, very guys who love Russia and they have no use for Zelensky. Uh, so how the heck is the West? going to actually win some kind of conventional war with Russia, as you suggest in your article. That that kind of boggles my mind. Uh, well, actually, it, it was uh, it, it wasn't the main point of the article. It was just uh, something that uh, seemed to me very normal, because, of course, this time, I mean, Napoleon's troops walked to Moscow and Napoleon and Hitler's troop, uh, troops had tanks and trucks. That's better. But with, you know, NATO would go with very high-tech weapons that they would fire from from Poland or someplace quite near. Um, it's you know, <laughs> you know, maybe the third time around will will be will do the trick. Um, 
but anyways, I, I think that Putin has already said that if there's, uh, you know, if the U.S. and you uh, and NATO join Ukraine, uh, you know, fighting Russia, that they would uh, consider all options. And we, we know what that means. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that that's probably why with missiles raining down on Moscow, even if they're conventional missiles, he, he wouldn't stand for that for very long. Right. And, so, yeah, I agree with it. if you frame it that way, then I completely agree. But if you frame it as NATO is going to, you know, could could easily beat Russia in a conventional war. No, I don't think so. Um, but mm-hmm. uh, in any case, so yeah, getting back to the, the nuclear issue, ending with a bang soon. Uh, and, you know, you're you're seeing this as if the neocons have kind of already gamed this all out and figured out where it's heading. And so they're actually planning to do it. And you're assuming that they may have some means of doing it. And of course, all of this is very classified and stuff. So we don't really know for sure. But what kind of time frame do you imagine here? I know there, there was one comment in your article that oh, said, uh, oh, it's going to happen like in a week. It's like on January 26th to 28th, the world's going to blow up. Well, uh, just one thing, Kevin, the, the other option is, you know, the other possibility that I put in the article is that Ukraine, uh, maybe independently, maybe not, might try some sort of chemical or biological weapon uh, against uh, Russia um, or a dirty bomb. And I mean, you remember that the Pentagon had a, a string of, of chemical or biological weapons uh, laboratories in Ukraine. And it seems to me possible that the Ukrainians kept a few of, of the vials uh, before the Americans cleared out when the war started. Um, so that, too, is a possibility that Ukraine could actually get the ball rolling, whether the Americans know it or not, by, uh, you know, if they're really desperate and, and the mm-hmm. Russian troops are at the door of Kiev, they might try to do that. And that also, I think, would uh, would start a nuclear war. I think I mm-hmm. think Russia would uh, respond to that with nuclear weapons. Yeah, that, that could be kind of a tripwire. And I think that's actually probably a more realistic concern and we we've already seen some examples of this when uh, uh Zelensky was uh, claiming that the Russian missile had uh uh, or, uh had hit Poland and in fact it was the Ukrainian missile uh, Zelensky wouldn't back down mm-hmm. and and then there was that warning uh from Lavrov I think it was that the uh, Ukrainians were planning some kind of uh WMD provocation and so mm-hmm. he opened up lines to the Western leadership, the American leadership, to try to stop that. And there were some signs from the American side that they wanted to stop it. That is, it was a case where there were some hotheads in Ukraine who wanted to bring in NATO. And they have every reason to, of course. And so mm-hmm. the the U.S., assuming that the U.S. doesn't want to come rushing in full bore and fight World War III and very likely go up in nuclear flames, which is how I think it would play out, uh, so that they, they don't want to do that. And and yet there are folks in Ukraine who'd rather gamble and risk it. And so that kind of WMD provocation that you're talking about makes a lot of sense that somebody in on the Ukraine side, a hothead on the Ukraine side who didn't want to lose, would uh, would try that. And then with the Americans, how would they respond? Uh, that's the question. And you're yeah. suggesting the neocons have this first strike plan and they're going to just go ahead and push the button. Well, I sure hope not. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, and you ask why I think that it's going to happen soon. The reason is just that um, in the past year, a year and a half, the Biden administration 
is getting up more and more momentum on, on the question of Taiwan, antagonizing China. And that's why I think that, you know, they're obviously, you know, going for some sort of confrontation soon against China. And, you know, the result is that they have to do something about Russia first. And that's why I think that they would uh, make some sort of move against Russia, you know, before they make their, their big move against China. That's that's the only reason. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, it still strikes me as quite reckless uh, and uh, counterproductive to try to fight Russia and China more or less at the same time rather than divide and conquer. But I guess ultimately, if you divide and conquer, let's say they had taken a very fr- more Russia-friendly policy of the kind that some Trump and some of his advisors sort of seem to lean towards, and tried to co-opt Russia and then really focus on China, which actually may be what the Trump administration was doing. I'm sure you've seen uh, Ron Unz's articles on the case that the mm-hmm. COVID, uh, COVID came out of a U.S. bioattack on China, out of the Trump mm-hmm. administration. Yeah, I've seen this. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So yeah, maybe that's an interesting yeah. case. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I think that's uh, pretty, uh, pretty convincing. So you may have, have you know, one group that wanted to go after China first and try and slow China's economy. And I think they've been to some extent successful with that. Uh, uh, but of course, at the expense of this pandemic, that's been kind of hard on the West too, to say the least. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then now we've got this administration that's primarily going after Russia first. Uh, it's uh, it, it's kind of unclear to what extent this would be uh, kind of a nice cop, bad cop routine where they, you know, kind of what first, you know, they're both answering to the same commanders and, you know, one administration goes after China, tries what it's got, and then the next one's going after Russia. But, you know, uh, if, if Ron Unz is entirely right about China and it was all about trying to take out China's economy and that they didn't envision any blowback, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, in that case, the lesson that they should take from that is maybe uh, extremely reckless WMD attacks on your adversaries might not be such a good idea. I mean, if the COVID thing got that out of control after this attack on China, how could they have any confidence that a nuclear strike wouldn't get out of control and attack on Russia? I mean, come on. Yeah, 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 that's true. That's true. Again, you know, the the people in, in Washington don't inspire much confidence. And, you know, over the past 20 years, all of the, you know, you talk about the recklessness of these people, all of the rules and treaties that covered nuclear weapons have all been swept away by the Americans. And that's, that's really reckless. Mm-hmm. You know, and so, you know, I keep looking at these dangerous people, and obviously thinking about dangerous things. And there's that, and this is also sort of one of those inflection points, one of those hinges of history. I mean, it's now or never. America has to stop the rise of China and, and, and with others if it wants to maintain its single superpower status. It's now or never. And they can't wait five years. They can't wait two years. It's happening now. So that's why I think that this is going to happen soon. So... What's your reading on the neocons' motivation for being so fanatically attached to the new American century and to to keeping America's sole superpower status? If you read Brzezinski's The Grand Chessboard, Brzezinski is a realist, not a neocon, uh, argues that the U.S. is going to lose its empire inevitably 
And no matter, even if we run it perfectly until then, we're still going to lose it by the mid 2030s, he says. And so the goal of U.S. strategy uh, leading up to that time should be to create the conditions for a post-U.S. empire world that would be most aligned with our values. So that's what Brzezinski says. And regarding the neocons, it's kind of a conundrum because what are their values exactly? Uh, the real neocons, the hardcore neocons, the real Straussians, those who actually you know understand Strauss, uh, don't have any values. I mean, they're nihilists. Mm -hmm. And their philosophy is there's only one natural right, and that's the right of the strong to rule over the weak. And so let's be the strong. Mm -hmm. But well, I guess I guess my answer to your question is that when you look at the the group that runs foreign policy that you know changes the personnel changes over the years and so on, but the group remains the same. What you see, and, and I remember, you know, as a student at the U of Minnesota back in the late 70s, when we were all studying how did Vietnam happen, what are the lessons of Vietnam, and you see the same uh, recurring pattern uh, through, through the years since then, and it's this. We are not going to be the ones who fill in the blank on our watch. Now, <laughs> yeah. in Vietnam, it was... It was, uh, you know, the uh, communists taking over uh, South Vietnam. In El Salvador, it was keeping the communists out of El Salvador. In Afghanistan, it was not losing the war on your watch. In Iraq, it was roughly the same. And the so, Reagan administration was not losing Grenada on its watch. Yeah, there you are. There you are. <laughs> and so, you know, you look at these people and it, you get the impression of like a big neighborhood boys club and they're all looking at each other and saying you're going to be the one who loses no no i'm not going to be the one who loses it on my watch no sir and, that, and it's true and after they retire then they don't seem to mind so much of oh if you if you lose it on your watch that's okay like you know these people who, who yeah. retire and start being more uh, truthful uh mm -hmm. paul craig roberts for example he was on board with the reagan you know anti-soviet stuff and look at him now yeah 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 yeah, so that's that's what you see um, among um, the people just in control of foreign policy. They have this very gothic kind of mentality about about their destiny, about America's destiny, and you know about uh, you know upkeep you know, keeping up the standard of you know uh, being the protector of the United States and the protector of democracy and freedom and, and so on and so forth. And I think that that just has a lot to do with it. They just want to be the ones who on their watch, keep everything intact and keep the ball rolling. Mm -hmm. So, well, if they start world war three on their watch, that's not going to look too good for them in the history books, right? If there are any history books. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder how, how much they really worry about that. I mean, I don't see that they have a lot of solidarity with their fellow man and that, you know, they're very much uh, concerned with being the one who keeps the ball rolling on his watch. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I wonder about that. Again, with the neocons, you have this weird kind of uh, contradiction between their nihilistic philosophy and the way they become the most ardent 
flag wavers and uh, they they urge the most hardline extremist uh, patriotic imperial policies, even though they totally don't believe in the ideas of of the country that they're supporting. Like with you know Strauss hated America. He thought it was a new Weimar Republic. He he thought mm-hmm. that uh, you know but parliamentary democracy was you know was decadent and so on. And you know he was a disciple of Carl Schmidt only more so. Uh, and so it's just bizarre that disciples of Strauss end up uh, acting as though they really think it's so important to preserve and extend American liberal democratic institutions all over the world, uh, when in fact they have total contempt for those institutions. And um, honestly, I, I think that pro- you know the, the real neocons they think the people that actually care about the liberal democratic institutions are the stupid gentlemen they talk about the gentlemen and the philosophers so they are the philosophers and then the gentlemen are the front men the political front men and the military generals and stuff who are stupid enough to actually believe in something like they believe in god and country they believe in the constitution they believe in liberal democracy liberal values all that sort of stuff which of course the neocons uh, have contempt for anybody who believes in that or anything else so it's it's very uh, it's a bit you know confusing to me. I mean, the neocons don't even really believe in Israel theoretically. Um, their excuse for supporting Israel is, was expressed by Michael Ledeen, who uh, in some interview somewhere I think he you know he basically uh, expressed his Straussian philosophy as that the purpose of life is to join together with your friends and allies to beat the crap out of your enemies. That's all there is in life. <laughs> so uh, I guess nihilism can sort of you know fuse into that, and and so being mm-hmm. ethnically Jewish with that sort of built-in uh, you know the DNA of tribally banding together, you can sort of see why then they take that attitude to uh, you know to, to their Zionism. But mm-hmm. as far as the American liberal democratic institutions being fanatically defended by nihilist neocons, I, I'm still completely flummoxed by how that works. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Well, I, I'm still flummoxed by why America didn't, you know, just make some sort of arrangement with the, the Russians about Ukraine. I mean, you remember roughly a year ago at this time, the Americans and the Russians, they had meeting after meeting after meeting. And, you know, they, they came. <laughs> Russians through the red line, pointed and, at it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, you know, yeah. they could easily have come to uh, an agreement and avoided uh, the war, but they didn't. Mm. And there's got to be a reason for that. I mean, the Russians weren't asking a lot. They all, all they incompetence wanted. or conspiracy. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I don't know. So you're, you're, you're on the conspiracy side. You say it's a conspiracy to do a nuclear strike on Russia. And I, I guess I would go with the incompetence theory, but you know, only Allah knows. <laughs> maybe, yeah. Maybe they come together the, the two lines at some point. Yeah. But, you know, there was obviously a great resistance to a very simple uh, resolution of, of the Ukraine business. Mm. And the Americans, you know, uh, were just sort of putting off the Russians. And there must be a reason for that. Well, here, here's my incompetence theory spelled out in a little more detail. I think that just as a big new Brzezinski, a, a Polish member of the minor nobility, hated Russia in his bones for ethnic reasons due to these primordial uh, tribal hatreds. The same is true of the Jews who come from the Ukrainian pale of settlement. 
They hate Russians and they hate Ukrainians too. And so consciously or unconsciously, they orchestrated this mass slaughter of Goy, Russians and Ukrainians, following this atavistic ethnic hatred. And I'm not being anti-Semitic about this because Brzezinski would have done the same thing. And he's Polish and he's Catholic, right? Uh, it's, you know, a lot of people are prey to these atavistic uh, tribal hatreds. But you look at Blinken and, and you, you know, you, you look at uh, the Kagan family and all those people, they feel that their people were horrifically persecuted by these Slavic Christians forever. And they just hate them. And so I think that, you know, just as Brzezinski was irrationally anti-Russian in his policies for that reason, so too these Jewish uh, Khazars or whatever from the Pale of Settlement uh, are basically following the same kinds of irrational, extreme anti-Russian policies for the same reason. Yeah, yeah, that might be the case. Um, but I don't know. It's just that, uh, since, you know, those three or four months of, uh, of, of meetings and everything. And again, I think the Russians weren't asking a lot. They wanted a neutral Ukraine that could, you know, they could trade with anybody. They wanted, you know, respect for the, you know, the uh, uh, ethnic Russian population and so on. And, you know, America didn't want to do it. They obviously were sort of pushing Russia into the position that they had to invade in order to save the ethnic Russian uh, population in, in the east of Ukraine. And it seems to me, well, incompetence or hatred, yeah, it could be, but it seems to me that there has to be some sort of logic behind it too, some sort of some sort of real policy behind it. Mm -hmm. Well, I th think they, they might have been you know, dreaming of what you suggest, ultimately having this first strike card that they could play. But whether they really have a plan and, and then whether it, if they did, it would be workable. Those are other questions. And I hope we don't find out the answers to them anytime soon. I hope not. Well, we've finished the hour. That's a good place to leave it. So thank you so much, Philip Kraske. I appreciate your work. You're uh, really a very talented writer. And as we see in this article, uh, an unconventional thinker who's not afraid to provoke people by asking interesting questions. So uh, keep up the great work. And, and God bless. Oh, tell us about your your books, by the way. You're, you've written some great books. Um, yeah, well, I, I have, uh, I've written uh, six books. And uh, the last one is uh, about... Um, um about the american prisoners of war that were left behind in vietnam um at, at the end of the war um the americans refused to pay war reparations and so the vietnamese kept these prisoners as hostages until america paid america never paid and the hostages were never released america the american government covered all this up so anyways, my, my story, which is actually a, a novella, um, about 100, 120 pages, um, and then has some some short stories. Uh, that's That was my my last book. That's it, um, It's a very good uh, read. What's it called? The Legacy, the Legacy of Chains. Le that's right. Legacy of Chains. Excellent book. And, you know, it's uh, Ron Unz, our publisher at the Unz Review, uh, came to all of these red pill issues uh, largely by way of that particular issue of the prisoner being left behind uh, in Vietnam. So that's one of those true conspiracy theories that uh, became the basis of, of your excellent novella. It's highly readable with great insights into these kinds of issues in general. So it's, it comes very much recommended by me. So thanks, Phil. Uh, take care. Well, thank you, Good God to talk bless. to you. Okay, likewise. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.